Sahlan, and welcome to the Golden Age of Islam podcast. Today we're going to talk about a hot topic, and that is Islamic law, or the Sharia. This is one of those terms, like jihad perhaps, that's sure to stir up excitement whenever it's mentioned. You can go on the internet or listen to talk radio and find out about all kinds of politicians in America who supposedly have secret plans to impose the Sharia in Wisconsin or Houston or someplace else. And most of those people probably have no connection with the Sharia whatsoever. Now, in fairness, there are groups out there like ISIS or Boko Haram imposing their own version of Sharia that would have appalled the founders of Islamic law. So, as you might well expect, the reality is something quite different than these alarmist, frightening visions. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The bottom line is that when the Dark Ages were going on in Europe, and a trial consisted of sticking your hand in boiling water, or walking across burning coals, the Muslim world had a standardized system of legal codes that ruled from Spain to India. It governed everything from taxes to contracts to personal injury law and made long-distance trade and commerce possible. So today we're going to look at the real development of Islamic law in this great empire. So stay tuned. Hello and welcome back. Well, to discuss the subject of Islamic law, we should start off by noting that it really feels a unique function in Islam. That is to say, there is no real equivalent in Christianity, for example. Now, if you've been following this podcast, you know what the reason is going to be. It's my favorite point to bring up, and that is that Islam began as a state, as a government, as a society, as a religion and it grew as such. So if you're sick of hearing that point, then I've done my job here. And so this is because Islam, being this comprehensive system, is going to need laws not only for religious functions, yes, but for civil functions, for economic functions, for trade, and they're all going to come under the same umbrella. And so this is why we develop a type of law in Islam that becomes associated with the religion that we don't find, let's say, in Christianity. So just to give you an idea of how this difference plays out, we're going to talk about two groups of people during this golden age of Islam. And the first are the Islamic legal scholars, or jurists. This is a group in Arabic known as the ulama. And that's probably a word worth knowing, because you'll see this used in even English history texts. Now, this is sometimes translated as Islamic clergy, but that's not really correct, because the Arabic clearly means scholar, and these are people who are experts in the law. They're not uh, people with priestly function. But you can sometimes see why it's translated that way, though, because they fill the role that clergy would fill in the lives of, say, Christians. The other group we're going to talk about are the scientists or the philosophers. We talked a lot about them in the previous episode. And remember, they worked in both areas, science and philosophy. These are people like Al-Kindi, Al-Farabi, Ibn Sina, and so forth. Now, the domain of the ulama, the Islamic jurists, 
basically we could say it covered all areas of action. These are things that you either had to do or refrain from doing. So, therefore, Islamic laws of all kinds, yes, religious laws like blasphemy, how to pray, how to fast, and what is clean and what is not clean, but then also civil law, trade, contracts, property disputes, criminal law, all of that falls under the ulama. On the other side, we could say that the philosophers dealt with realms of ideas. So yes, physics, chemistry, astronomy, optics, and so forth, but also ethics, philosophy, theology. Now this is a different distinction than what we have in the West, for example. We would tend to divide things into the religious and the secular. So rules about religious practices like prayer and issues about theological questions, the nature of God and so forth, all of that would fall under the clergy. Science would be separate. That would fall under the scientists. And civil law, criminal law, this belonged to the government, which was neither one of those two groups. But remember again, Islam never has this religious-secular divide. It's one community one state with one leader and so the duties are broken down by function we have the the rules people and the idea people so to speak i mean that's a gross oversimplification but you get the idea now of course there's going to be overlap between these two groups because the ideas that the philosophers come up with are going to have an effect on islamic law and in fact a lot of great minds worked in both areas. But nonetheless, there is a divide between them, and we're going to see a conflict develop between these two groups. And this becomes much bigger than any differences within these groups. Well, you may be surprised to hear that when Islam conquered much of the known world, it did not impose Islamic law on the conquered people. And that's a bit surprising because today we tend to think that the defining feature of an Islamic state is following Islamic law. And quite frankly, hardliner, Islamist, fundamentalist, this is what they insist on as the definition of an Islamic state or an Islamic polity is that it follows, of course, their version of Islamic law. And one of the first things radical groups like ISIS do is impose their version of Islamic law. But we have to remember, during the initial conquests, First of all, there was no Islamic law to impose, and this is due to the rapid nature of the conquests. Remember, within 30 years from the start of Islam, they had conquered most of the Middle East, including some great empires that already existed. And their basic message that they were spreading was, one God, submit to God, acknowledge Muhammad as his prophet, and then also, of course, submit to the authority of the caliph. And even if you didn't want to do that, that was okay. You just had to agree not to fight against the Muslims and to pay a tax to them, which was usually set to be whatever the tax rate you were already paying was. So this was a pretty simple message that they were spreading. 
And of course, part of this is, again, I'm going to stress my favorite point, that Islam begins as a community, and this community grows at the same time as the Holy Scriptures are being revealed. So we actually have a state that we have to rule over before we even have the whole Quran. And so this is why there is no formal Islamic law to impose on, say, Syria or Persia when we conquer those areas. The early caliphs, of course, they were more interested in keeping the momentum going, keeping this rapid expansion up than they were in imposing laws or trying to change the societies that they found. Of course, again, they didn't have many laws that they could have imposed. The Quran only has about 500 verses of a legal nature out of over 6,000 verses. And those apply mostly to people within the Muslim community. They deal with things like inheritance and so forth. Uh, so not really at that point a lot of Islamic law that you could impose, uh, which is a different view than most people have of the Quran. There's just not a lot of rules in it. But if you can imagine, if the caliphs had decided that they wanted to develop a really detailed legal code and impose it on everyone, then that would have meant the conquest would have been very slow and probably much less successful. So what they did in general was keep the laws of the countries that they went into. And in, in general, almost every place that Islam spread into had a more developed infrastructure, government, and legal system than what you had in Arabia. They went into Syria, they went into Persia, which were um, really the most advanced civilizations in the world at the time. So we get the very first qadis, uh, or Islamic judges, and this is another term you'll see used a lot. These were initially sent out to the garrison towns to keep order amongst the Muslim populations, which was largely the Muslim army. Now, if you remember, the uh, Khalif Omar in particular didn't want the Muslims mixing in with the local population. So he set up new towns for the Muslim garrisons to live in, and Kufa in Iraq was amongst the biggest of these. And, and just a, an interesting point, you remember Omar was concerned about the threats coming from the sea, and that's why most of these garrison towns were set up inland away from the coast, and why so many Arab capitals today are inland. But anyway, the earliest Qadis had no legal training. There was really no legal training to give them. Uh, but they were trusted individuals, and their duties were governed over the Muslim populations in the garrison. So they did things like taxes, they resolved disputes, they performed administrative functions, and were generally under the military commanders at the time. Well, if you've ever been in charge of a group of people for more than five minutes, you know that you're constantly resolving disputes and making rules. Don't touch anybody. Don't touch anybody's stuff. Jimmy, stop making that face at Mary, and so on. So the number of situations that the Qadis had to deal with expanded exponentially. And just because the Muslims were in garrisons, I mean, they weren't locked up and prohibited from interacting with the population. There was a lot of interaction. There was a lot of trade. They were intermarrying with the local population. And this is how Islam eventually spread. But it's interesting that we always note when we talk about Islamic history, we make a big issue out of the fact that the Islamic empire allowed Jews and Christians to live in their own communities with their own laws and courts. But this was not just a special concession that was given to them. 
This really started out as the way the entire state was run. Pretty much everybody was allowed to keep the legal systems that they already had. And as the population began to convert to Islam more and more, and some of the big cities that were outside the garrisons, places like Alexandria and Egypt, eventually became Muslim, Islamic law spread to all of those, but the pockets of non-Muslims still kept their independent courts and independent legal systems. But the idea, again, is this was not a special rule for them. This was really the, the leftover from the way it was for everybody. And if we ask, well, why did they do that? This seems like a, an unusual thing to do in this era and time. Again, it goes back to the idea that the early Muslims didn't believe that they were imposing a new religion on people, like, hey, you have to abandon Christianity and join Islam, but that they were going out to fellow believers and correcting some of the, the ways that they had gone off track, some of the mistakes that they had. So it wasn't an idea that we have to completely remodel this entire civilization. So this is just an important image to keep in mind because the idea of these Bedouin warriors riding out of the desert, imposing their harsh Sharia law on the populations, that's just not what happened. Okay, at this point, to continue our discussion of the history of Islamic law, we have to divide the Islamic legal world into two groups. And you notice we're doing a lot of that here. But we have to keep these two straight. First, there are the legal offices, the, the qadis and their staff and so on. These are people who have official duties. They're officially appointed by the governors. Eventually, they'll be appointed by the khalifs. And they have administrative responsibilities. They can make judgments. Then there are the legal scholars, or the ulama, the jurists, as we described. These are the people who are developing the law. Now, these qadis are initially sent out with very little guidance. Basically, their character and their good judgment is all they have. But back in the major cities of the empire, the scholars are developing the legal guidelines that would go out to them. This is very different than the image uh, we have of law in our society or really any modern society. The key here is that Islamic law is not being created from the top down. We don't have the caliph and his advisors drafting a constitution and then sending out the laws. And so it's somewhat different than what we have today. Uh, let's say we have, of course, a lot of judges out there in the, our legal system, and then we have legal schools Harvard Law School, Yale Law School. But what they're studying are laws that are passed by the legislative branch, by Congress. And even in a dictatorship, they're studying laws that are being passed by the ruler. This is a very different situation in Islam because we have the Qadis being sent out and we have Islamic law being developed in essentially these what are going to turn into legal schools but they're pretty much independent. Now, of course, some of them will get the favor of the caliphs, and their laws will eventually become uh, adopted by the caliphs as the official law. But it's very interesting that this is not a top-down thing. 
so when we want to talk about the development of Islamic law, we talk about schools of Islamic law. And by schools, we mean like a, quote, school of thought, not an actual building with a faculty. Like when we talk about the Freudian school of psychology, the Marxist school of political economy, and so forth. The Arabic word for this is madhab, and beginning Arabic students will probably recognize the root there, dhahaba, which means to go. It's one of the first verbs you learn. And so that's literally what this is. A madhab is like a direction that you go in, like it's a way of doing Islamic law. Now, if you are a little bit confused by this, of course you can be forgiven. You know, we're very forgiving on this show as long as you download it. Uh, we, so we have schools of law, we have schools of philosophy, we have sects of Islam, we have dynasties and states and so on. And so there's a lot of different things going on here. And this, again, is because Islam is everything at this time. It's not just a, a religion in our sense. It's a religion, it's a state, it sponsors science, it sponsors philosophy, and so forth. So we need a, a whole legal system, so we have... Islamic schools of law, just like we're going to have Islamic schools of philosophy and really science and, and so forth. So that's what we're talking about here. Usually we like to talk about the four main schools of Sunni law. So we're already restricting ourselves here to the domain of Sunni Islam, which is the, the majority of this large empire. Most Sunnis today agree that there are four legitimate schools of Sunni law. So, for example, to give you an idea of the relationship, uh, if you go to some of the great teaching mosques of the Arab world, would eventually evolve into the first universities, you often find that there's a central courtyard and four wings off of it, like the shape of an X. The four wings represent the four schools of law, and they would teach all four there. So it's not like these were, you know, fighting each other to the death. It's like you could go in any one of these. And it was generally agreed that whatever your particular school of Islamic law, you could be judged by someone from a different school, and you could follow worship from a prayer leader of a different school. It really gets down to technical points. So what they have in common is really much more than the differences between them. So when we talk about the history of Islamic law, uh, one of the leading scholars, and again I highly recommend him to you, is uh, Dr. Wa'il Halak from McGill University. And we're going to be relying on his model, his way of describing it here, because I think it makes it very clear. Uh, he essentially breaks down three stages in the development of Islamic legal schools. And all of them are important to get an idea of how this develops. The first is a differentiation between two groups known as Ahl al-Ra'i and Ahl al-Hadith. Now you may remember the word Ahl. We've seen it before. Ahl means basically people or family. It can even mean nation. It's a group of people who share something in common. Like when we talked about Ahl al-Kitab, that was the people of the book, and that meant Jews, Muslims, Christians, and Sabaeans. Ahl al-Bayt, this meant the family of Muhammad, and it was specifically refers to his descendants through Ali. So that's what the Ahl is. The word Ra'i in Ahl al-Ra'i means opinion, and it comes from the word to see. Uh, incidentally, if you see this written, if you're reading a book in English, the word ra'i will probably look like ray. It's uh, written 
R-A apostrophe. Why? But it's pronounced Ra'i. And this is because that apostrophe that you see is the letter Hamsa in Arabic, and you have to pronounce it. It makes a break in the sound. Incidentally, you find that in a number of other languages, uh, like uh, Hawaiian. You see a lot of Hawaiian words have an apostrophe. That's because Hamsa is a very common letter there. So you words like Hawaii, Molokai, Kawaii, and so forth. Anyway, Ahl Ara'i, as it sounds, means the people of opinion. Ahl al-Hadith, as you can recognize from our previous episode on the Hadith, refers to the recorded sayings of the Prophet. Okay, and so these are two different directions on basically developing Islamic law. Well, Ahl Ara'i is associated with the city of Kufa in Iraq, and Ahl al-Hadith is associated with Medina. And these, of course, were the two big cities of early Islam. And that's where all types of scholarship were going on. Well, the names tell you a bit about the difference, but it's generally believed that since the earliest Muslim community began in Medina, and Medina continued to be really the center, that was the capital, and so that's where Hadith was being first developed and codified. That's why Hadith became more important in Medina. Kufa, of course, in Iraq, is a significant distance away, and so it's believed in the early days they just didn't have access to as much hadith as Medina did, and so that's why they relied more upon opinion. Now, before you go too far off on this, I have to clarify it a little, because, first of all, all schools of Islamic law agree that the most important source of law is the Quran. Okay, so that trumps everything. And then the second source of law for all schools of Islamic law is the Sunnah of the Prophet. But remember at this time, in the first century of Islam, the Hadith is still being discovered, it's being evaluated, and gradually being recorded at the same time as they're developing law, because they've, they've got a state that they have to govern, so they have to do this. So the number of Hadith is pretty small. So those first two... We all agree that those are the top two, but what if those don't answer your question? Okay, what's number three? And this is where the two schools diverge. Ahl Ara'i says it's the opinion of the jurist. Now, this is not just a gut feeling, but it means a qualified jurist, meaning someone who knows the Quran very well and someone who knows as much hadith as can be known at that point and makes a judgment based on those. The difference is the Medina school says that the third source is the consensus or the ijma of the community. And they're referring to the community of Medina as far back as you can go. And so they're saying if we don't know exactly what the prophet did on a particular issue, well, what did his companions do? They would have done something that he would have approved of. If we don't know what they would have done, well, what did the successors do, and so on, and even if we have to carry it up to the present time, which at that point is not very far removed from the initial community, that's what we do. Now this, you'll see, is justified by a very famous hadith in which the prophet says that my community will never agree on an error, although this hadith was probably made just to justify the logic of using this idea of the closer someone was to the prophet, the more likely their interpretation was correct. Now, the difference here really is if you're living in Medina, there's still some old survivors from the previous generation, 
people are still doing what their predecessors did. So if you live in Medina, you have a better idea of what the Islamic community did. If you're in Kufa, which is a garrison town that was set up you know, in the desert, you don't have that much to go on, and so you depend more upon the opinion of the jurist. Now, we should be careful what we're talking about here, because when we talk about these sources of Islamic law, it can sound like we're talking about radical differences. We don't mean that, say, the Quran says pray five times a day, the prophet said to pray four times, the companion said three, and the judge says one. It's nothing like that. What we mean is you need clarification from the sources, and so it's how do you get that clarification. For example, to take a very real example, the Quran definitely says to cut off the hand of a thief, and that's found in 538 for reference. Okay, well that's very clear. But exactly what constitutes theft? As you know, there are a lot of variations on taking somebody's stuff that may or may not be considered stealing. Well, according to a number of hadith, theft is basically defined as occurring when the property moves from one secure location to a secure location of the thief. So, for example, I can have the intent to steal something. I might want to steal it. Uh, I might even start planning to steal it. I might even go into your house with the intent of stealing it, but let's say I, for some reason you show up and I'm not able to do it. But if the property never actually moves, the theft hasn't taken place. I mean, I could start to say, pick it up, and then you catch me and I drop it. Well, I haven't stolen it yet. So they say that once I move it from your location to my location, theft has occurred. Okay, so that's the Hadith clarifying the Quran. But when you get to a real case, it's going to be even more particular. So let's say a group of people break into a house to steal something. And one member of the group actually picks up the property and takes it out. So does that mean that only the guy who physically moved the property gets his hand cut off and not the rest of them? Well, Ahil Ara'i would say common sense says no. Look at the intent of this. They were all involved in it. They all worked to do this, so they all get the same punishment. Now, in Ahl al-Hadith, they would say, well, what did the community do? Well, the community said, you punish all of them. So they're coming to the same conclusion, but it's how you do this. So now we have our first two legal schools, one in Kufa and one in Medina, and these two are associated with two of the most important names in Islamic law. The Kufa school, again, Ahl Ara'i, is associated with a man named Abu Hanifa, and thus the first of the four major Sunni schools of law is named after him, the Hanafi school or Hanafite. Hanafi is associated with a higher acceptance of individual jurist opinion and reasoning. In general, Hanafi places greater emphasis on individual rights and freedom. It's seen as more tolerant of non-Muslims, and it was generally more lenient in its punishments. The second school, which develops really at the same time, is associated with a person we've mentioned before, and that is Malik ibn Anas. 
and good if you remember who he was. The school is eventually named after him. It's the Maliki school. But remember, Malik was the one who produced the earliest Hadith collection that we still have, his famous Mawatta. And this is not a coincidence. Remember, he is the leader of Ahl al-Hadith, and he was the greatest master of Hadith in his time. But interestingly, his collection that we talked about, the Muwatta, was not strictly a Hadith collection like later ones, Sahih al-Bukhari, for example. But what it actually was was a guide for Muslim jurists, and it's organized by legal issues. So all the Hadith referring to theft, referring to adultery, and so on. And so this was your guide of how you were to use Hadith to judge things. Now, as we've seen, Malik was also a great expert on the early community, the companions and the successors. And that was part of studying Hadith, because these are the people who passed on the Hadith. And so that's why he places such importance on the consensus of these early believers. Now, Medina was also subject to rebellions during the Umayyad period, and so the Malachite school and much of the Muslim scholarship in general, which had been centered in Medina, moved to Egypt, which was a much more secure location for the Umayyads. And Egypt then became the center of the Malachite school, even to today. And the Malachis generally spread westward throughout North Africa and into Spain. And that's still, North Africa is where they are still dominant today. But even this historical memory continues to be important. There's a big effort from the Saudi government today to try and lure ulama back from Al-Azhar in Egypt to work at the University of Medina, sort of to reverse this move that went on centuries ago. Okay, so the second phase is what we call the individual schools of law. To give you an idea of the scope here, it's estimated that there were over 500 individual schools of Islamic law by 800 AD. We're talking only a century and a half after the beginning of Islam. Now, these have their origin in the famous teaching circles of Islam. And literally, that's what they were. A scholar would set up, usually in a mosque, and usually the scholar got to sit against the pillar, and a circle of students would gather around him, and that's how they would study. And in fact, people were free to move from circle to circle. People traveled great distances to join the circle of a famous teacher. Okay, so by the time of Abu Hanifa and Malik, they had large communities of people who followed them. But in mosques all over the Islamic world, there were scholars, respected people, developing Islamic law, teaching it. And so naturally, these circles became identified with the teacher and became really the proto-schools of Islamic law. Well, the reason that some of these evolved into formal schools and most of them died out, this is the final stage in Halak's model, is that some of these attracted so many scholars over successive generations that they really became institutions. And one interesting point about these formal schools of law is that although they're all named after a person who is the, the nominal founder Actually, most of their doctrine and systems were developed by later scholars. 
But the key was to attribute everything to an Abu Hanifa or a Malik. It's kind of like today, you can talk about a Freudian psychologist or a Trotskyite Marxist or a Maoist, even though those people were dead before most of the current students began studying. And that's how we get the Malachite school and the Hanafi school, even though most of their laws were developed by later generations. The third great school of Sunni law is named after Muhammad al-Shafi, who was originally a student of Malik. And he's, uh, Shafi is considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest, legal minds in history. He began in Mecca, but eventually moved to Egypt. Well, Ashafi spent much of his time debating against Hanafi jurists. Remember, he was a Malachite. But in the end, he became convinced that both the Malachites and the Hanafites had good points and bad points. And so he is best known for his, quote, great synthesis that he developed to try and reconcile these two positions. He went much further than any of his predecessors in systematizing the methods of legal reasoning. Uh, But nonetheless, his synthesis was not completely successful, obviously, because the Hanafite and Malachite schools did not disappear. Uh, They continued, but he was so admired by his followers that they eventually developed the Shafi school. Now, the Shafi school was much smaller than the other two because it didn't really have a foothold But interestingly, Shafism spread initially to East Africa and then to South Asia and Southeast Asia. And if you know from history class, that was the Indian Ocean trade routes. And those areas were never conquered by Islam, but that's where Islam spread to. And today, the largest Muslim populations in the world are found in those areas. And that's where the Shafism spread to as well. Okay, so... To return to the Hanafite school, our first school, it was in fact a later jurist by the name of Abu Yusuf who was the key in formalizing and promoting the Hanafite school. Now remember, the Hanafis were based in Iraq, in Kufa, and so they were close to the Abbasid court in Baghdad, and they used that to their advantage. So Abu Yusuf eventually was appointed the chief judge under the Caliph Harun al-Rashid. So this became a big boost for Hanafism. Remember also that the Abbasid power base was in Persia, and specifically in Khorasan in northeast Persia. So Hanafism spread eastward into Central Asia, and that's still where it's dominant. Now, the Hanafis got a big boost during the Abbasid period when they allied themselves not only with the Caliphate, but the rationalist school of philosophy. Now, we're going to commit a cardinal sin here of podcasting by making reference to an episode we haven't actually had yet, and that is talking about the development of early philosophy. But these things are so intertwined, we can't separate them. So just to give you a little idea, the rationalist school of philosophy, which became known as the Mu'tazilites, we'll talk about them later in the future, uh, they were riding high during the Abbasid Golden Age. In fact, we could say they were the golden boys of the golden age. This was the school from which the leading translators came, and then the leading scientists, particularly medical scholars, the leading philosophers. These were the greatest commentators on Aristotle and the Greeks. They were very close to the ruling elite in the Abbasid period. They had a tremendous amount of influence. 
but they allied themselves with the Hanafis because remember we said uh, amongst the legal schools, the Hanafis were the most favorable to independent reason and opinion. So as you might imagine, they meshed well with the rationalist Mutazilites. So it was sort of a, you support me, I'll support you kind of thing. So if the Hanafis were debating the more traditionalist Malachites, well, you could get support from the rationalist philosophers because they liked independent reasoning and rationalism as well. And if the philosophers wanted some justification from legal scholars, well, they could get it from the Hanafis. Well, to put things a little bit more cynically, they made the best of their connections with the caliphs, and they both rose to a very high position. Well, surprisingly, the first inquisition that we have, or doctrinal persecution, was not launched by conservatives against the rationalists, but rather the other way around. And this was the infamous Mehna. And this was launched by the Khalif Ma'mun, who was associated with the peak of Abbasid patronage of scholars. And he actually required all religious scholars and jurists to declare their agreement with the rationalist school of philosophy. Now, we'll discuss the particulars in a future episode, but there were a lot of big issues on things like free will and predestination that these two groups did not get along with. Well, he came out and said, you have to sign up and say you agree with my folks. But it just, just gives you an idea of how powerful this intellectual trend was at this time. Ma'mun was absolutely enamored with scholarship and intellectual development. He loved the Mu'tazilites, the rationalist philosophers. Therefore, he was in very tight with the Hanafis. And just because these folks are dealing with lofty ideas, it's sort of like college campuses today. There was a lot of politicking going on. There was a lot of money to be had, a lot of support, and a lot of influence. And it got pretty nasty. So people were actually imprisoned and tortured if they refused to accept this rationalist ideology. Now, surprisingly, this actually backfired. Despite how powerful the, the rationalists and the intellectuals were, traditionalists, the jurists, had strong popular following. And it's like today. I mean, how many people are really into philosophy today and really care much about one school of philosophy versus another. But a lot of people care about religious rules, about law, and so it turns out that the traditionalists, even though they weren't that popular amongst the elite, they had tremendous popular following. And so the Khalif Ma'mun was eventually forced to relent, and he had to end the Mehna. Well, there's sort of a lesson there for the future. This kind of thing is going to play out in the future. Well, the Hanifites, though, they were, they were quick. I mean, they were clever enough to use their political alliances to their advantages, and they were quick enough to dump them when they needed to. So although they suffered a lot when the, the Mu'tazilites fell, the Hanafis eventually bounced back by allying themselves with a more mainstream philosophy school, they had lost a lot of ground, but they were able to regain it. So again, we don't want you to think this is just a bunch of people studying in books, pondering in their ivory tower. I mean, there is a lot of politicking and backstabbing and influence peddling going on here. 
But it's really the adoption of Hanafi law by the Ottoman Empire as its official school, which is many centuries in the future, that makes Hanafi the largest school of Islamic law today. But there was another effect from the Mehna, and that is the hero of the Inquisition was a man named Ahmed ibn Hanbal, and he was a strict, strict traditionalist. Uh, he was tortured in prison for not being willing to accept the rationalist point of view, which probably only stiffened his adherence to tradition. Well, this is why Hanbali becomes the fourth and final major Sunni school of law. It's largely on Ibn Hanbal's reputation as having suffered for the cause of being unwilling to cave in to these people. In reality, Ibn Hanbal was much less of a jurist than the others. In fact, many scholars debate whether he was actually a jurist at all. Like other founders, his name was elevated to the status of a school founder by his followers. And it was particularly a scholar named Al-Khalal who developed the Hanbali school and promoted it in the name of his teacher. Ibn Hanbal himself was really an expert in hadith, and he was the greatest hadith master of his time. And so many people think he wasn't even a jurist. The reason it's hard to tell whether he was or not is that Hanbali law relies so heavily on hadith that it's hard to tell what's a book of law and what's a book of hadith. Now the difference we said, like for Ibn Hanbal, the Quran is of course the first source of law. But for him, hadith is second and that's it. Unlike the other schools, Ibn Hanbal says to use hadith even if it's a weak hadith. Now that may sound strange to you because remember what we said in a previous lesson, weak hadith means one that is rejected because it's probably not true. So why would you use that? Well, the reasoning behind this is a bit complicated and it's really not as strange as it sounds on the surface, but Hanbal was a, an expert in specific hadiths. So he could look at a weak hadith, see what the specific problems were with it, and then decide, hey, this is still better to use. But his idea was we should be relying on the tradition of the prophet as much as humanly possible. In the end, however, a hadith, however weak it was, trumped independent reasoning. And in fact, the only kind of reasoning that Hanbal allowed was called kias, which means analogy. And this is the most basic and most restricted form of reasoning. For example, we know that wine made out of grapes, which has a specific word in Arabic, is clearly prohibited because it makes people intoxicated. But you can make wine out of a lot of other things, and particularly date wine was made in the Middle East. That's not mentioned specifically by name. But the analogy is, okay, getting drunk on date wine is not any different than getting drunk on grape wine, which is prohibited. So analogy says that, okay, that's prohibited as well. So as you might expect, Hanbali is seen as the most strict, the most conservative form of Islamic law.
Hanbali law might well have died out, but it gained prominence in future generations through the work of later conservative scholars. And we're going to discuss them in the future, but I think it's important just to note what events actually trigger the growth of Hanbali law. And this is really informative when we see why Islamic law develops in a certain way. Okay, the first big boost to Hanbali law occurs in the time of the Mongol conquest. And during that time, the eminent legal scholar Ibn Taymiyyah, who was a strict Hanbalite, and Ibn Taymiyyah is one of the most quoted figures today by militant Islamists and is very much taken out of context, but he had a huge impact. And as a hardline Hanbali, he was very conservative in his rulings. But it's largely through Ibn Taymiyyah that the idea develops that Islamic law is the defining characteristic of a Muslim society. This is the essential thing. As we saw in history so far, up to that point, that was not true. Yes, the Islamic empire had Islamic law, but it had a lot of other things. It had philosophy, it had theology, it had mysticism, it had a lot of other things to it, and law was just one function. It's really through Ibn Taymiyyah that this becomes the defining function, and we see this impact in, in, in our world today. The reason he gets this idea, and this is just to give you an idea of the, the context, is that the Mongol conquerors who were destroying the Muslim world at this time often claimed to be Muslim. Genghis Khan, for example, he also claimed to be the Antichrist when he attacked Europe in order to scare the Christians. Now, later Muslim generations did indeed convert to Islam. But during the initial conquest, this was not true at all. They were just saying this to deter the Muslims from fighting against them. Well, Ibn Taymiyyah ruled that it was legal to fight against the Mongols when they were invading, no matter what they claimed, and the reason was they did not follow Islamic law. And in fact, if you went to their camps, they had their own pagan religious law that was completely different, and that's what they adhered to. Well, this concept over the centuries morphs into the idea that any leader who does not follow Islamic law to your satisfaction or the way you interpret it is fair game to be killed. I mean, this was the logic that the assassins who killed President Sadat of Egypt used. It's not what Ibn Taymiyyah was referring to, and this interpretation of it is rejected by all mainstream jurists, but this is the favorite of jihadists and terrorists. Okay, the second boost to Hanbali Islam comes in the 1700s when a very strict religious leader of the Hanbali school, a man named Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, developed a very strict version of this, which has later become known after him as Wahhabism. He allied himself with a tribal leader from Central Arabia named Muhammad ibn As-Saud, and of course they created the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which is this alliance between the two. And to this day, the Wahhabi version of Hanbali law remains the official doctrine, although Saudis reject this name of Wahhabism. They just call it Hanbali law. But through Saudi efforts, this version of Hanbali law has been spread to other parts of the world. But during the Abbasid Golden Age, Hanbali was still a small legal school, 
And even though the Mehna had failed, it only slightly dented the influence of the scientific and philosophical rationalists. They continued to hold great power. But what we've seen is that the traditionalists of Islamic law could hold great power as well. And this balance of power between them would shift. It would go one way or another based on different caliphs, based on different threats. But it's certainly when the Mongol conquest come that the Islamic legal scholars, the ulama, rise to become the major force in this empire. And one could argue that's the way it is today. And so the key for us here is not to make an overall stereotypical judgment on Islam and say, well, it's very law-based or it's very conservative, or to go the other way and say that you know Islam just loves science and philosophy. The reality is both of these factors, the conservative and the, the liberal rationalist trend, exist. They, of course, they're going to exist in a, in a society this huge, they continue to uh, vie for power, but it's important for us to look at the sort of events and factors, these external shocks and threats that really push the empire more towards the traditionalist, strict, legal side, and the philosophical side begins to decline. And that's what we're going to look at in the future. But I hope we've given you some picture of the development of Islamic law we will continue to hear these concepts and names in the future. Again, thank you once again for your, your kind attention. We appreciate all your positive comments, and we look forward to seeing you again in the future. Thank you very much. Shukran jazeelan wa masalama.